Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boop. I'm feeling extra spontaneous today. I'm feeling a little bit spicy, so I'm going to give you no context. We're just going to drop you straight into the crime. Welcome, welcome. We've got a woman by the name of Ellen, and Ellen, she's got these two beautiful kids. She's got a daughter by the name of Stacy, which, side note, the rest of the names in today's entire podcast are their actual names, but we're going to call Stacy Stacy. It's a fake name, and you'll find out for what reason, for legal purposes. So her name is Stacy. So Stacy is fake. Everything else is real. Everything else is real. Okay. The name. Just the name change, okay? So we're just going to call her Stacy because she's underage, she's a minor, she's, um, there's a lot going on. You'll see at the end of the story why we had to take her name out. And then she has another son by the name of Stephen, who happens to be a little bit younger. I would say like four years old at this time. So she's doing what every single mom does. I mean, she got Wait, home. how old is Stacy? Eight years old. Oh, okay, okay. So she, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have dropped y'all in with no context. <laughs> he said, wait a minute, give me some context. So she comes home with these kids. She tries to put Stephen to bed, reads him a little bedtime story. He falls asleep in his room. And Ellen, she starts unpacking all the groceries in the kitchen. Stacy, she's in the bath. You know, that's what eight-year-olds do. They take a bath at night with their little Barbie dolls. And they scrub them down. They do their hair. She can hear Stacy talking about her little dolls in the bathtub. She's like, well, your name's Kelly. And I'm my Michael and we're gonna kiss was that just me when I was eight years old that's what my Barbies did sorry that feels illegal to admit now for some reason and so that I mean Ellen could hear her little daughter playing so she's just having a good time and as she's unpacking the groceries she's just talking about man think it to herself it's been it's been a hard day being a single mom it's been raining today it's just, it's just not a good day. So she slowly walks to her bedroom and she finds a hairdryer and acting completely normal as if she's just doing another house chore. She walks into the hallway, plugs in the hall dryer to an outlet outside the bathroom and she sees that little eight-year-old Stacy is washing her face. So her eyes are closed because when you're eight, the last thing you want is soap in your eyes. And Ellen calmly walks over to the bathtub and drops the hairdryer in. And Stacy hears something drop into the water. But, I mean, you know, her eyes are closed. And she just immediately feels excruciating pain. I mean, felt like something was dragging her body down. Pain all over her body. Managed to somehow get the hairdryer, turn it off, and throw it out of the tub. By the time that that took place, she's shaking. She's got a little bit of blood dripping down her mouth. And all, you know, Stacy's little brother, Stephen, comes and runs to the bathroom. Ellen is now in front of the bathroom. And they're like, what happened? Ellen helps her out of the bathtub, dries her up with a towel, and turns to Steve and says, Honey, what did you do? And so she starts dressing them to go to the hospital, and both the kids are just hysterically crying at this point. They have no idea what's going on. Steven's like, What? I'm four. I'm confused. Stacy is in so much pain. She has no idea what happened. And meanwhile, as she's prepping them to take them to the hospital, she keeps telling them, Remember, kids, we came home from the grocery store. You went to take a bath and Stephen went to go to bed. And I thought that Stephen was asleep, but Stephen was up. And he decided that he wanted to help you blow dry your Barbie doll's hair, right? Isn't that what you said, Stephen? Isn't that what you thought? So four-year-old Stephen, didn't you walk into my bedroom, grab my hair dryer, plug it in, 
and you just wanted to help her with her Barbies, right, Stephen? And you dropped it in the tub. Isn't that what happened, Stephen? Now, at this point, the kids are not really listening to her. She's like trying to come up with this whole Game of Thrones plot. And they're like, I am crying. They're just hysterically screaming at the top of their lungs. And so a neighbor, he hears this while he's taking the trash out to the little trash. What did he hear? Just like children, like screaming like crazy. Oh, he didn't hear the moms telling. No, just like hysterical crying. And it's like 11 p.m. So he calls the cops and he waits in the lobby for the police to arrive because he was really concerned. Now, Ellen keeps telling Stacy, remember, you have to tell the hospital what really happened, that Stephen woke up and he wanted to dry your Barbie's hair. Now. Stacy felt a little bit weird about this. You know, she remembered that Stephen was asleep. She had actually remembered helping him fall asleep by reading him his favorite bedtime story. And nobody else was in the bathroom when she went to wash her face. She was confused, but she was also in a lot of pain. So they walk down into the lobby and they meet with the police out front because the police are like, um, I just got a call about like domestic violence. Something's happening with some kids. And Ellen tells him, well, I need an ambulance. My dog, my, my dog, I'm so sorry, oh, <laughs> I'm shit. so sorry, I'm so sorry, I have dogs, I don't have kids, so my reaction is my dog, um, sorry, sorry, collect yourself, Stephanie, because my daughter, she was just electrocuted, I need an ambulance, and they just like casually point in the direction of the hospital, the little girl's crying, I mean, but she's walking, she's talking, she's even kind of bickering with her mom, so she must be fine, and our job is done, so the police just point in that direction, and by the time that the family gets to the hospital, Stacy just decides, you know what? I'm going to do what my mom said. I'm going to tell them that my little brother dropped the hairdryer into the bathtub. I mean, he's only four. And thankfully, the doctors checked out Stacy. She had dilated pupils and hemorrhaging on the tongue, but nothing serious. But ever since that day, you know, she just felt a little weird. And I think it got a little bit weirder because less than a year ago on Thanksgiving Day, her other brother, two-year-old David, had died. Oh my god. And Stacy just thought, that's a little weird. So let's start from the beginning, right? Who's Ellen? And in order to understand where she's coming from, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, not a deep dive, but just a look into her childhood. And it all starts with a man by the name of John Booker, who was her dad. And he was, I mean, just like the complete Southern boy. His family owned a cotton farm, for crying out loud. Like, I'm talking as Southern as it gets. And he decided one day that he was going to move from Mississippi to St. Louis, Missouri. That's where Ellen is born, right? So he's like, I'm going to make this big trek. Back in the day, St. Louis was like the pop in place that's where you have opportunities jobs everything new is in st louis so he packs up his little bags and i know what you're picturing right now you're driving you're doing the dishes whatever you're doing you're picturing this young boy fresh faced fresh on the scene 18 years old with his little bag like oh i'm looking for a job no he was packing his bag in the middle of the night because he wanted to escape without his family members knowing his wife and his seven children he wanted to leave the house to missouri without them knowing so he's like an old dude, okay? So he's, he's gonna go buy some milk. <laughs> he's gonna, oh my God, yeah, he went to go buy some milk. He did not tell them. He leaves and the kids were absolutely devastated. I mean, seven kids, they're thinking to themselves, yes, dad was an alcoholic. Yes, he was just kind of absent in most of my childhood. But did he love me? Absolutely. That's what they told themselves every single day. And the day that he just vanished without a note, without an explanation, I mean, it just all came shattering. Now, his first wife, she she was devastated so much that she never dated again. She said that till the day that she died, she loved John Booker. 
which is kind of insane to me. No one is that good, you know? And so John goes to St. Louis and he is not like his first wife. He doesn't think about her. He immediately gets remarried to a woman by the name of Catherine and they have his eighth child together and they named her Ellen Booker. Side note, Ellen's dad was never a good person and it seemed like Catherine was kind of just not the most around parent like she wasn't the most comforting she wasn't the most nurturing so ellen just struggled throughout her entire childhood with finding like this authority figure that she really really liked so when she's in high school her dad john booker sits her down and says listen ellen i need to go back to mississippi for a couple of days because you know my ex-wife she's dead now and i need to go be with my other children and i need to say my respects i need to go to the funeral i need to make sure that everything's okay in mississippi are you gonna be good i know that you're just like a sophomore in high school but you're good right and she's like yeah of course dad i mean of course you need to go say your respects yeah go to mississippi i'll see you in a couple days they give each other a kiss and out the door he goes and guess what he never comes back he decides that oh he's gonna God. live in mississippi with his other children he said you know what i i'm gonna go back to my first family so he deserts Wait, his he first went back to his original family yeah to live with his sons from his first marriage so he deserts his first family. Also, he actually brought back the milk. Yeah, he brought back the milk like 17 years later. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so he goes to live with his sons. His first wife has passed and he just completely abandons Catherine and Ellen. And it was an absolute shit show on Ellen's life. So by the time that she's a senior at Roosevelt High School, she instantly fell in love with the closest authority male figure in her life. And I'm talking literally, like physically closest in distance. She fell in love with her bus driver. Yeah, of her high school bus, Paul Bohm. And he was old enough to be her dad. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, I tried. I tried to look everywhere at obituaries to find out how old exactly Paul Bohm was. And if I, f I found one obituary that seemed that there was some connection to Missouri a little bit. It was in Ohio. And it seems like he's probably like 20 years older than her. But I don't even know if that's him. So I can just only assume that he was much, much older. And he felt like he hit the jackpot of like catching a case but that's a different story so he's like i'm a winner i need to marry her the same day that she graduates from high school straight from the graduation ceremony yes toss that graduation cap we're going to town hall getting married and ellen's like whoa 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 i love you paul but i i want like a year or two right after high school i want to just like experience life i want to just i want to do my own thing maybe buy my first car maybe get my first job like can i do that paul can i and he thought to himself well Maybe that's not a bad idea because I'm still married. Paul was married. What? <laughs> Paul was married and he had two children. They were his adopted daughters, so they weren't his biological daughters, but he adopted them. So they're pretty much his daughters. So he's like, you're right. You're right. Like, let's wait a year or two because I need to legally get divorced. So see you in a year or two. And eventually, you know, he gets divorced and he marries the love of his life, Ellen, three days before her 20th birthday. Three days. They get married. I mean, it's insane. So the initial part of their honeymoon phase was cut short because Susan was his first wife, right? And he had adopted Paul's first wife. Yeah, Paul's first wife. He had adopted her two daughters. But after Paul had moved out after the divorce, the daughters kept telling the mom like, hey, I finally feel safe telling you this. But he had been abusing us for the longest time. So she gets super pissed and she goes into mommy mode. She takes him to court and they agree that he has to undergo counseling. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the judge is like, oh, yeah, take your ass to jail. Oh, yeah, you should be a registered sex offender. They're like, maybe you should go to some therapy. 
So he's like, okay, I'm going to do some therapy. And Susan forgives him and they just try to like move on with their lives. She um, had moved on and Susan got elective surgery, went on a diet. She lost 155 pounds. And Paul just kept asking her, why didn't you ever do this for me? Why didn't you do this when we were married? To his ex-wife? Yeah. What a crazy dude. Why didn't you, why did you ever do this for me? Why did you not do this oh when we were married? God. That's how their first days of their, this honeymoon marriage was going. And then it got even worse because Ellen's mom had no place to live. So Ellen's like, okay, well, I guess I have to take care of you because, you know, your husband left. My dad left to Mississippi. I guess this is it. So she actually moves into the couple's basement. And this was a damper for Ellen. Like she wanted a new beginning. She wanted to start my own family. And now now her mom's just living here all the time this is really stressful but at least alicia has free child care so throughout the rest of their marriage ellen will have three children so her first child will be stacy and then two years later steven two years after that david so she has three kids right now during all of this ellen develops a strange a strange obsession from like the get-go of their marriage she loved the world of professional wrestling Oh my God, she loved it so much. She loved it more than anything. It was a passion of hers. She would attend every single professional wrestling match anywhere in her local vicinity. Wait, Later, she, she would practices or she watches. No, she it? watches. She loves watching. But it. she doesn't do it. No, she'll just watch it for like hours huh. on end. She loves it. So during the first year of their marriage, you know, Paul would go with her, try to be excited, but he just like wasn't into it. He would just sit there, and eventually, near the end of the first year, he's like. Why am I here? Like, this is a waste of money. This is a waste of my time. I don't want to be here. Now, while they're there, that's when they meet another couple. And this couple is really pertinent. Well, Deanne and her husband, they're another couple sitting there and they just spark up this conversation. And they were newlyweds too. And Deanne, just like Ellen, was so into pro wrestling. And the husband was just like Paul and was just like there for support, but hated professional wrestling. So they started talking at all of these matches. Eventually, both of the husbands stopped calming what <laughs> both of the husbands stopped coming what okay sorry so both of the husbands stopped coming because that's what marriage does to you um kidding <laughs> that took you a minute to get that one so they stopped no, I get coming. It. okay <laughs> and at these matches they would start talking about like diets clothes friends you know husbands and eventually they started talking about how deanne said that she's getting a divorce i mean i just can't do it anymore he's just not in the same vibe as me i know that we just got married but oh well and ellen just was really relating to this she was like my marriage is troubled i mean i don't know what it is about it but we just don't get along we just there's just a disconnect maybe it's because he's double your age ellen but whatever she was like there's just a bit of a disconnect so her and deanne become super close friends i'm talking best buds i mean they're both working women they both didn't like their boyfriends they both love pro you know professional wrestling and all of that so they start talking on the phone every single night and Ellen, to give you a little side note on Ellen, she was working for a company called Marshall and Stevens for the past five years, and she constantly complained about how she wasn't getting paid enough at work. That was like her favorite thing to do. So after her third kid, you know, Paul told her to quit and the bosses were actually ecstatic. They were like, yeah, OK, that's great. We don't oh, my God. <laughs> and that's so, and that's so, so, <laughs> when your employer is excited that you're quitting. Yeah. That, 
<laughs> I don't even know what to say. So they were like, that's really good news. <laughs> Happy for your third child. And so she quits. And right before she has her third kid, she's like a stay-at-home mom. And she decides, we- we've got to do more stuff. We've got to do more stuff. So her and Deanne start going on these crazy road trips. I mean, this professional wrestling obsession turned into one that was financially, emotionally, and physically exhausting. They went on road trips that were hundreds of miles outside just, of St. Louis. Just them two? Just them two. To watch these pro wrestlers wrestle and then they would drive right back. Sometimes they would be on the road like all day. They would watch the match and then drive home all night so that they could make it in time for work. Why do I find it so suspicious? <laughs> yeah. No? Yeah. It's like, hey, babe, I'm going to go with my butt, Johnny, yeah. to watch pro frisbee. You know, they get sensitive when you tell them it's not pro. They call it ultimate frisbee. Put some respect. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we're going to do this that's weekend. That's what we're going to do this weekend. Yeah, no, no, I'll be hiding in the backseat. <laughs> I'll be tracking you. Thank you. So the fantasy of this started to get really intense for Ellen. I mean, she was obsessed with these wrestlers. Deanne, it was a little bit different for her. This was kind of her escape from reality, like how we would watch TV or listen to murder podcasts like that. That was her thing. She just liked to get away. She liked the energy of the crowds, the kind of the performance that all these wrestlers were putting on. And that was it for Deanne. She was a very normal person at that. But Ellen, I mean, she started developing these fantasies where she was like, hey, do you think that wrestler likes me? He keeps looking at me. Now, I will say that Ellen, um, according to a lot of sources, is not the most conventionally attractive woman. She's not the type of woman that, and like, no one, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, everyone is beautiful in their own way. But I think in terms of that's what everyone just kept saying, which is like fucked up. We get it. We get yeah, it. And yeah. so she was like, no, this guy really likes me. And she was obsessed for years with this one guy named Ted, who is also known as the million dollar man in the pro wrestling circuit. Why? I think He's he so made good. a million dollars, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what they called him. And she had been following his career for like six, seven years. And she would mail him letters, just like really intense letters. And he, she just thought, okay, like when he comes to the ring, he's going to be thinking about my letter, my juicy letter. And he's going to see me on the stands and be like, that's my juicy letter sender. But that didn't really happen. And she just got so intense. Eventually, her crush moved on to the manager of one of the team members of this pro wrestling circuit. And it was just a lot. And she started making up these lies and Deanne started noticing this is where things got weird. She started making up these lies and she didn't know if she's hyping up her story, you know, because because you do that sometimes, you know, or maybe you really believe it. It's weird. She couldn't tell. She talked about how uh, she knew the guys from the from the wrestling. Like she would go to the bars with her other friends and Deanne would be there and she'd be like, yeah, so we went to this pro wrestling show and yeah, we know all the guys there. We went to get drinks at the bar. We hung out all weekend. And Deanne's sitting there like, we did go to the bars that the pro wrestlers went to, but we were on the other side of the bar and they maybe talked to us for five minutes at the bar when we try to strike up a conversation, but we weren't necessarily hanging out, were we? Mm. Like, but it's like such a weird way of telling it. Like, it's not completely false. They were at the bar together. So she's like, is this her way of hyping up stories or is she just, does she believe that that's what happened? She didn't know. She just thought it was weird. Yeah. It's like someone saying like, yeah, my buddy, actually knows elon musk (laughs) 
<laughs> and yeah like, exactly you know? like, yeah. sure turns out elon musk liked one of his tweets and that was it <laughs> so yeah i mean it was just a weird situation where she just kept telling people that they would go to these bars they would hang out together if anyone looked in her general direction she would tell all of her friends oh my god he's into me like why is he staring at me like does he does he want to talk to me it was just it was really intense so people could just kept saying that ellen lived in this fantasy land specifically when it came to men it didn't seem like she did this with anything else like she wasn't the type to be like guess what you know Deanne was hitting on me but like anytime it came with men she would sit there and she'd be eating lunch with her friend and they would see this like young 21 year old over there in the corner enjoying his lunch and like mind you ellen she's like in her 30s she's got kids and this young dude probably wouldn't be like oh yeah let's date immediately like i am not gonna leave this lunch place until you date me not necessarily right but she just kept saying yeah that guy i know him he used to work at my ex workplace and oh my god every day he would come to my little desk and he would beg me to go on these dates with him and i'm like i'm married you're so crazy i'm married i have kids don't be don't be naughty and they're like, what? Like, I just can't imagine that happening. But it's also it's also kind of sad in a way because if she is lying, it's sad. But it also if she isn't, I mean, it's just weird. They just didn't do anything about it at the time. But later on, they found it so strange that they noted this all to the police later. Like, just kept nonstop talking about she's in a fantasy land with these men. Why is that? What do you think it is? I don't know. I don't know. Do you think it's like insecurity that she has? I don't know. Because I'm kind of insecure, but I don't really think... I don't know. Maybe insecurity shows differently. Hmm. But that, that was... Yeah. So they just all thought it was weird. At one point, Ellen was telling Deanne, Oh, this guy from work, my former workplace, he wants to take me and my kids to SeaWorld. You know? And Paul, he's been out every single weekend just, like, doing his thing. I think he's, like, seeing other people. It was at the point where Paul and Ellen, they weren't really in a marriage. Like, they were together for the kids, but they weren't hanging out. They had nothing to talk about. They were just doing their own thing. She was going to these all these wrestling shows. He was just nonstop out drinking, meeting other women. So she was saying, Yeah, this this guy, he wants to take me and my kids to SeaWorld. But because he has kids and I have kids, we're going to get separate rooms in the hotel. But also because it could possibly be a work scandal that he's like dating an ex-coworker. I, I, we're going to drive separately. That boy from the cafe? No, like a different guy. Oh, okay. And so they're like, okay, that's a little weird. Like that's, you don't think that's weird? That's weird. No. So again, they just didn't really think anything of it. They just thought, okay, if that's a lie, that's bizarre, but we don't really want to point it out. We don't want to do anything. And at one point, she just went through this phase where she really just wanted to copy everything that Deanne did. So after the divorce, Deanne was watching the Oprah show, the talk show, and she's watching the talk show and Oprah is talking about the Optifast diet. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she decided, you know what? I have been, you know, technically you know, a little bit over the weight that I wanted to be my entire life. And I finally want to do something for myself, especially because after this divorce, I'm a working woman. And even though those meals are expensive, I'm going to do it. So Deanne gets this meal plan on and Ellen was just kind of jealous. And she was mainly jealous at the fact that Deanne didn't have kids and Deanne could spend all of her money on these cool diets to lose weight and on clothes and makeup. And, and she couldn't do any of that because they were tight on money and she would have to spend everything on her children. And it was just so annoying. 
and she did everything to imitate Deanne. She would wear the same outfits, same colors. She'd be like, what color are you wearing today? And she'd be like, I guess blue. She would show up in like an all blue outfit. She wore the same perfume as Deanne. She got the same highlights in her hair, cut her hair just like Deanne. It was just really intense. So Ellen and Paul's six year anniversary comes around. And this is two weeks after she gives birth to her third child. So now she's got three full kids that she's taking care of. And Paul tells her, listen, I've got to go to Texas. I don't want to leave, but I have to go. I have to go to the Veterans Hospital in Texas because, you know, I think I'm sick. I've been having these rashes. And remember when I told you I was in the Vietnam War? He actually was in the Vietnam War, by the way. Um, when I was in the Vietnam War, well, we were exposed to something called Agent Orange. And these rashes, they're really killing me. So I got to go to the Veterans Hospital in Texas. I'll be gone for a couple of weeks, but I love you. And she was like, what? So I looked into it and Agent Orange, I mean, what? Why do I not know about this? It's actually really, really bad. So it was used by the U.S. military in the Vietnam War. And it's technically considered an herbicide, which just means that it just obliterates all plants in its vicinity. But it's it's crazy strong. So they would fly in these helicopters and just pour herbicide all over Vietnam. I mean, it was incredibly damaging to the environment. But in hindsight, it caused major health problems to humans exposed i mean they're just tons of it were sprayed all over the damage left three million vietnamese people suffering from illnesses the u.s got sued by both u.s and vietnamese veterans because the damage was that bad u.s got sued by u.s by u.s veterans that fought in the war because oh, okay. the u.s you know the government kept telling the veterans or the army people like hey this isn't dangerous just fly in the helicopter just surround yourself and it smell it breathe it in put it into your lungs and just spray it all over vietnam it's gonna be fine why did they spread it at first place so um it would t wipe off all of the agriculture and livestock oh so, so they would, don't have supply yeah so it would oh. pretty much render vietnam you so know. they're spreading poisons. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Got in a lot of trouble by the whole world after it afterwards. And Vietnam, they were just struggling to this day. There is a lot of Vietnamese children in the villages where the herbicides were poured, the Agent Orange, where they have cleft palates, they have mental illnesses, they have hernias, they have extra fingers and toes. And there were a lot of birth defects. I mean, they also unleashed this terror onto Laos and Cambodia. That's lesser known, but they they just put this everywhere. The government was like, I'm going to spray the shit out of everyone in Asia. Cool, cool, cool. Thanks. I'm American, by the way, if anyone's wondering. And not only were the poor civilians, civilians living in these rural areas being affected, like trying to grow the crops to make money, like they were affected, just regular civilians, you know, not even veterans. But the American troops, they came home and they, I mean, they had high levels of cancer of the Vietnam veterans. They have just high levels of birth defects reported. It was really intense for everybody involved. He said that he had all these rashes all over his body. So he's like, all right, I got to go to Texas and check it out. So, of course, I mean, the story technically checks out, doesn't it? Yeah. It sounds about right. But he wasn't going to Texas. He's actually going to go to Arizona to be with his new wife that he met on the bus as a bus driver. He did the Shut same thing again. Up. Yeah. Oh my god! So while during these years he was still driving bus and picking up girls. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, and so he was like, "All right, gonna go to Texas." Meanwhile, headed to Arizona. So this is their six-year anniversary, and only two weeks after baby David is born, and Ellen is completely alone. And she starts telling Deanne this, like, "It's gonna be fine. He's gonna be in it back in a couple of weeks." Oh yeah, Agent Orange. That's what's going on. And Deanne's thinking to herself, "That's weird." And she tells her. You know, my ex, my ex-husband had like a surgery 
when we were together and I was there, you know, the doctor was talking to both of us, telling us what's happening, how to support each other, what to expect as a couple, as a family unit. And he just, he just left. I mean, I get it. It's a veterans hospital, but it runs like any other hospital. You're allowed to be there. This doesn't make sense. Maybe, maybe you should make sure that he's there. So the week after Ellen drives all the way to Texas and there is no report that he is anywhere near there, hasn't been there, just nothing. So she gets back home super confused. Like, where could he be then if he's not in Texas? Did he die on his way to Texas? What happened? She gets a call and this person, this angry man says, your husband is having an affair with my wife and they run off together. And she's like, well, I don't know you. So the girl that he picked up has a husband on the school bus yeah really complex so i think that time he wasn't doing a school bus probably like a transit bus but um it seems like she was still pretty young but just really confusing so paul divorces her from arizona and he just completely abandons her he was supposed to pay her about a thousand dollars a month in child support but he was not sending it to her and there was no way that she could even locate him she didn't even know where he was living at the time it was just really complex and so she has to go back to work she starts working at a place called anderson consulting which is like this huge accounting firm in st louis and her mom had to be the permanent unpaid babysitter so this was a massive life change i mean just huge she's working all day she was making about forty five thousand dollars a year a single parent she would um do this little side job delivering pizzas at one point that was really hard she's trying to make new friends at work she was somewhat friends with paul's first wife so after paul abandoned her it seemed like she rallied together with his first wife and was like they were both like can't believe he abandoned us you know, and so they kind of became friends. I also think it has to do with the fact that they somewhat have like half siblings, you know, so maybe they should mm. get along. Yeah, kind of or just relatable, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, her work schedule is hectic, delivering pizzas four night a week, 40 hours a week. I mean, she was doing about 60 hours a week total, but she still had to file for bankruptcy and lose the house. So all of this, I mean, we sympathize with Ellen, but not for long. So she's busy every single day, getting the kids ready for school, feeding them school, mom, baby visits, you know, going to work all day, then delivering pizzas as a part time job, shopping, grocery shopping, taking the kids to the doctors, running regular errands. I'm exhausted already. And her only source of happiness throughout all of this was, you guessed it, pro wrestling. She somehow managed to keep it going. I mean, even if she was dead tired at the end of the week, her and Deanne would pack up in the car, drive 100 miles to see the next closest show. They would stay at a motel, get a wink of sleep, drive right back, hit it, go, go, go. I mean, that was like the life that she was living. Now, Deanne didn't have that many kids or that many bills, but she always felt like for Ellen because this was her one happiness. Ellen didn't really spend her money on like going to the movies or going bowling so this was like her one outlet so she didn't think it was strange you know because sometimes mommies can be a little shamey you know what does that mean sometimes moms get shamed like oh if you're so busy as a single mom how are you still finding some semblance of happiness so dia didn't think that way but this was also back in the day where i'm sure it was much harsher like 2021 is a little bit more woke yeah but there was a little bit like i'm glad at least there's one one thing thing. that keeps it going Right. right to keep her going the rest of the 60 hour work weeks now ellen was having a having a bit of a crisis so three children later she felt really insecure about her body she constantly said that she said and i quote i feel fat and lonely 
And it was just really sad. So Thanksgiving comes around and Ellen spends all day preparing a nice meal for her kids and her mom. And they spend the nice evening together and she drops off her mom and her kids are like, mom, like, let's go do something fun, right? Packs up all the kids, takes her to see the um, Christmas lights downtown. So she takes all the kids there. They look around and on the ride home, David falls asleep. So she's like, man, if he's sleeping in the car, we're going to get to the house. And he's like, um, two years old. He's going to want to watch TV. He's going to want to do something like this nap is going to energize him. He's going to be like a little energizer bunny when we get home. That's not good. We were supposed to sleep when we get home. But sure enough, once they get inside, he's like bursting with energy. He's like, mom, I got to do something. I got to do something. And so Stacy and Steven, I mean, they they're wiped. They go to bed immediately. And David is like, can we do something? Can, can I just like watch TV? So she's like, OK, I will be doing laundry and you can watch TV. So he's laying on the ground just watching TV. And finally he falls asleep and she decides, hmm. And she calmly puts down the iron, grabs a seat cushion from the couch, the big ones, not even like a back sofa. Do you know what I'm talking about? The actual seat that you sit on, that big like two by three chunk of cushion, the big Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. that you almost never take off unless you lose something in the couch, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess for cleaning, if you're clean. Mm -hmm. And she took it off put it over his head and held it down. And he fought back for about 45 seconds to a minute. But she's, she, I mean, this is a two-year-old. She's much bigger than him. And this is a two-by-three cushion. And she just keeps applying pressure on the pillow. And then he stops fighting back. She calmly places the cushion back. And she calls up a good friend of hers. And they talk for about a good 10 to 15 minutes. How's your Thanksgiving? Yeah, well, I, I made this. Oh, yeah? Well, how was that one? Oh, I I heard about that recipe. What'd you guys do after? Well, I dropped off my mom, and then we went to go see some Christmas lights. While David is laying next to her, dead, turning, his lips are turning blue. So Ellen's like, yeah, I took them out to see lights, and Stacy and Steven knocked out. But, you know, David, he's, he's wide awake. Yeah, watching TV right now, wide awake at this hour. Crazy, huh? Some of them are just energizer bunnies. You know, it's weird, though. He hasn't been feeling well. He had a, he had a cold earlier this week. I bought him some um, cough medicine from, um, what's that pharmacy called? Yeah, Walgreens. I bought him some cough medicine from Walgreens. Maybe, maybe the turkey. Maybe the turkey's not sitting right with him. Wait, I got to call you back. Something's wrong with David. I, I have to let you go. I got I to gotta go. And she hangs up the phone. She calls 911 and she screams, runs into her kids' room. Kids, hurry. We have to go to the hospital. We have to go to the hospital. Please hurry, hurry. And then she tells them, stay in the apartment. I have to go look for help. I have to go look for help. So the kids are just in the living room with David lying dead on the couch, just scared out of their mind. So she leaves and she's just running around the building. I don't know what she's doing. The paramedics arrive and they start knocking on the door. Um, She had given them the unit name and they're like, ambulance, ambulance. Nobody's opening. And finally, a tiny little girl, Stacy, Uh opens up the door, scared. And she just points to the couch where her little brother is. Wait, Where did she go? She said, I got to go get help. So they're like, where's your mom? She's downstairs. What? So they just immediately start working on the David. You know, they're like, I think he's under like, you know, cardiac arrest. Like what's going on? We got to do something. They're trying to give CPR. They're trying to do all of these things. And finally, after 10 minutes, Ellen just like calmly walks, walks back into the apartment. They're like, uh, ma'am, where have you been? Yeah. And she's like, oh, yeah, he's been sick. 
What? What? She wasn't panicked. She didn't even seem to be upset that her child is in cardiac arrest and is like being lifted onto a stretcher going into the ambulance right now. And they said, all right, well, we need to we need to talk to you at the hospital. Like we need to answer some questions. Honestly, the paramedics were thinking about getting the police involved and they wanted her to be there. But she Mm. said, oh, no. Yeah, I can't get into the ambulance. I need to find someone to watch my kids. Which is like weird, but not that weird. So, I mean, it's weird because usually, usually you just, you never really see a parent not be in the ambulance with their child, especially when they're like two years old. So she's like, yeah, well, I need to find someone to watch the kids. And she just like goes back upstairs. So they go to the hospital. She calls up Sandy and she says, oh my God, they just took him to the hospital. Can you please come watch my kids? So Sandy comes over and Sandy had actually brought her mom. So Sandy's like being this crazy good friend. She's like, mom, you watch the kids. I'm going to go help my friend at the hospital because I'm sure she's like terrified right now. So Sandy and Ellen, they start going to the hospital emergency surgery on David. And Ellen, I mean, she's sitting there waiting. They're telling her, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. He's under a cardiac arrest. He's two years old. She says, all right, well, maybe I should go home and sleep then. So she goes back home and sleeps. So the next morning she goes to the hospital. Now, Deanne, she immediately finds out about David because she's David's godmother. Remember, at this point, Deanne and Ellen are really good buds. They're best friends. This is when, you know, David came out like two years ago. They've been they've been like that. Just BFFs. Who, who is Sandy? Sandy is like an old high school friend. Just randomly called her up. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it seems like they kind of kept in contact, but they weren't that close. Just so strange. Mm, okay. So I, and maybe it has to do with that. It was Thanksgiving. So they were like, oh, how's your holiday? Okay. Maybe. And so Deanne rushes to the hospital and she sees Ellen and she's like, oh my God, my poor friend. She's been here all night, just anxious, miserable, waiting, waiting for the doctors to tell her some news. And they go in, they see David and it was just so sad. There was so much connected to him. I mean, he's just like this tiny little two-year-old looking just so small compared to the rest of the room, connected to a ton of equipment to keep him alive. And the doctors kept telling her, you know, we, we've done everything we can for him. Mm-hmm. And so Ellen's just staring off and Deanne suggested, okay, well, well, maybe maybe we should go home, you know, shower, get a good sleep, come back, you know, because this is a lot of information, doctor. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. And in the car, Deanne's like, oh, man, you must be so exhausted, Ellen. You, you must be so tired. Mm-hmm. Oh, I went home last night. I don't really like to do this often. I don't really like to admit the fact that my mom was right about something. Nobody likes to do that. But the one thing that I can tell you that my mom is deadpan on, the one thing that she instilled in me ever since I was young is eat your collagen, take your collagen, collagen is life. These days, I mean, you don't even have to scroll very far down your newsfeed to see a story about the restorative effects of collagen, but it's way more than just hype. You can actually get the very best collagen on the market from ancient nutrition. I have been taking their collagen powders, especially because sometimes I see these powders that are like, ooh, collagen without the taste. Put it into a scoop of coffee. I'm like, I I still taste it. Don't you dare lie to me. But ancient nutrition, I mean, it's completely unflavored. It dissolves in any liquid. So you just put a scoop in your morning coffee, your smoothie, or even to like your banana bread, your baked breads. And it gives you that collagen boost without tasting all of this collagen powder. You don't need that. And they have one goal, and it's to transform the health of every individual on the planet with history's most powerful super foods. So whether you want to improve your body, sharpen your mind, or just feel like your best self, Ancient Nutrition makes supplements that get real results that you can see and feel
feel. So they have products made from the highest quality ingredients and they're rigorously and repeatedly tested for purity. Their best-selling multi-collagen protein powder includes five types of collagen and it's the first and only collagen on the market with clinically studied ingredients proven to help reduce joint discomfort as early as day one, improve those fine lines, those wrinkles after four weeks, and transform your overall skin tone after eight weeks. I mean, it makes a real impact. So right now, Ancient Nutrition is offering 20% off your first order when you go to ancientnutrition.com and enter promo code ROTTEN at checkout. That's ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code ROTTEN for 20% off your first order. Ancientnutrition.com. Enter promo code ROTTEN at checkout. And Deanne was like, what? And Deanne thought to herself, you know, if my niece or nephew was in the hospital, it would take an act of Congress. It would take an act of God to get me out of that hospital. I would not move a muscle out of that hospital. And this is her literal child. What? But again, I mean, I feel like that saying is like embedded in us. Like people react to grief differently, which is true. So I think that's what she just kept going to. Like people react to grief differently. Maybe she wanted to be fresh, you know, in the head when she came to the hospital today, but still strange. So they get home and Ellen immediately wants to watch wrestling tapes in the living room. So they both sit on the couch. Deanne's exhausted. I mean, emotionally exhausted. So she immediately falls asleep. Meanwhile, it took Ellen a little while because she had taken a six hour nap at the hospital. So she was straight chilling a six hour nap wait so he sl- she slept at home came and then slept for six hours oh my god <laughs> yeah so they finally get ready to go back to the hospital and they go straight to david and ellen walks straight up to him and lifts up one of his eyelids and his pupil was fully dilated which just oh Deanne was like that's a really strange thing to do she didn't know what that was about just felt really weird about it yeah. just like the emotion of lifting up an eyelid without like she wasn't even that emotional she was like crying she wasn't like oh, i need to see his eyes one more time she just quietly walked over there like she's a freaking doctor weird she's like is this over yet yeah like she deanna is she feels like she's in an alternate universe at this point and the doctors they performed multiple brain scans and it was always the same result there was no change in his condition and he was just surviving off the machines so they they tell ellen that and ellen looks at deanne and deanne's like bawling her eyes out i mean she's like falling apart she says well what would you do to Deanne? Yeah, and Deanne says, oh, Ellen, th- this isn't my child. I, I I, couldn't make that kind of decision. Oh, no, I know. It's my child. But what would you do? <sighs> well, I, I know that if it were me on the bed, I, I don't ever want to be kept alive by life support systems. But that's, I'm like an adult. And Ellen just casually looks at the doctor and says, okay, yeah, turn it off. Like, what the fork? And so Dan, I mean, she follows the doctor out while Ellen's in the room with David. And she's like, well, how could this happen, doctor? Like, this doesn't make sense. What was the cause of death? And they tell her that it was sudden infant death syndrome. And she's like, but that, he's, he's two years old. He's 28 months old. Doesn't that only usually happen to kids that are like less than a year old? And I Googled it. It's like nine, nine months to like a year. It's like, okay, like then it starts usually not being SIDS. But they were like, well, maybe, but it could also be two years old. And they just kind of walked away. Jeez. So Deanne goes back to Ellen and, you know, Ellen's calling her mom, telling her, hey, mom, like your grandchild just passed away. And she asked to put Stacy on the phone. So Stacy's on the phone, her little daughter, her little like eight year old daughter. And she's like, all right, Stacy, well, I have something bad to tell you. And Deanne's like, no, no, no. Are you crazy? Are you insane? And 
she forces Ellen to hang up and she says, you can you cannot tell your daughter that her little brother just passed away over the phone. You 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 have to do this in person. What is what is wrong with you? And so she's like, "Okay." <laughs> and Ellen goes up to the doctors and she asks, "Hey, can David's organs be donated to science? I really want his eyes donated to science." Why? I don't know. And they told her, well, we can't really do anything because we can't donate his organs because of his fever. His fever was too high. Later, she would tell police and other people that, did you know David's organs wouldn't be donated because they were, and I quote, cooked inside of his body. That's what she would tell people, that they couldn't donate little David's organs because they were cooked inside of his body. Why is she into donating? I don't even know. I mean, this is so confusing. And it's also not like a crazy famous case. So there's not a lot of interviews. There's not, there's like barely anything. Huh. Yeah, it's really intense. So a lot of what we're getting is from like Deanne and a lot of people that were like court transcripts mm. and a lot of people that were close to um to Ellen, but not necessarily Ellen herself, other than like this one 40 minute confession tape that she leaves. So she held David for one last time and she just kept saying, David, mommy loves you. David, mommy loves you. And Deanne just said that it was kind of like a sickening noise. She didn't know what it was, but it was just strange. And she rushed out of there and went home and just, she just couldn't handle it anymore. So the next day, Deanne's at work and Ellen calls her while she's at work. So mm-hmm. she picks up and she's, she's just like, okay, like, how are you doing? And Ellen's like, well, I'm good. I'm on my way to the funeral home right now. And I was thinking that I could pick up some wrestling match tickets. What do you think? I'm on the way. And I know exactly what seats we want. Deanne's like shocked. She's like, I, I could do that. I mean, I could pick up the tickets. I mean, what, what, what are you talking about? And she says, no, I'm already on the way to the funeral home anyway. Like, how do you think about wrestling while going to the funeral home? Because your two-year-old child just died. Like, this is insane. So Deanne is confused. Now, the actual funeral for David, to most people, she seemed really sad. She was crying the whole time. But those that were close to her, they just felt odd because her face just seemed almost emotionless. And the first wife of Paul, Susan. So her ex-husband's ex-wife came to the funeral and as they're leaving, she's walking past two guys that were from Ellen's workplace. And Ellen looks at Susan and says, yeah, I don't know what to do. You know, those two guys over there, both of them want to go out with me, but I feel like I have to just choose one. And Susan's like, we just buried a baby coffin. I don't. She tells Susan, well, I guess that's one less who's got to pay child support for. And Susan's just like, all right, maybe I shouldn't be friends with her. And she just kind of steps away from this. But nobody again suspects that this mom could be that evil to kill her own child. And everyone at work started um, kind of like the old fashioned GoFundMe, like a bucket going around, like a little envelope yeah. <laughs> going around of cash. Yes. And they raised, they raised over $2,300 to help her with bills. And they were amazed because without even missing a beat, she was back at work. She managed to seem okay. She's not breaking down crying at her desk every day like how admirable is that she's she's holding on strong pulling it together for those bills and those kids and you know they're like wow this is this is so admirable now lisa is another woman and this is ellen's um nail technician so she has been doing ellen's nails for the last three years every two weeks without skipping a beat doesn't matter how much of financial strain it is ellen always had her nails done 
And the nail tech was kind of shook that Ellen didn't cancel her appointment and came literally a couple days after David's death. And she just acted like nothing was happening. And Lisa kept saying, you know, I'm so sorry. I, I My thoughts and prayers are with you. Like, I, what can I do? And she just told her, yeah, well, all I have to do now is get rid of his toys. And the nail tech was like, what? But she thought maybe it's grief. Maybe seeing those toys just like rips her heart apart. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's what's going on. I mean, it's very rare to lose a child. And it, when it is, it's such a strong response. You don't know how someone's going to react. So that's what everyone was just thinking. That's what everyone was saying. Mm-hmm. So where David was buried, it's actually a section of the cemetery that the gravediggers called Babyland, which is so messed up and so depressing. And the problem with the funeral home is that she owed them $5,000 for the funeral cost. But she had an insurance policy that paid her out $10,000 for David's death. So that's more than enough. I mean, she paid almost nothing in medical bills because she had health insurance. So mm-hmm. it all seemed like, okay, she would like pay. But she would not pay. And the funeral home policy is that they do not take action against unpaid bills for at least a year so she's just running around town with ten thousand dollars and she just spent all of it she took the rest of her kids to disney world went to florida went to a bunch of wrestling matches i mean she blew through the run money so she instantly starts calling all these other insurance companies looking for more money so there was another company that she used to have an insurance policy with and she kept saying where's my money where's my money i'm supposed to get be getting a twenty thousand dollar life insurance payout for my son and they just kept saying yeah but you stopped paying the premium like months ago Mm-hmm. we're not going to give you the money. And she was pissed. Meanwhile, her coworkers gave her all this money. She still doesn't pay the funeral home, just like spends it on her obsessions. And at work, she starts talking about how she's obsessed with crime, obsessed with the current crime that, you know, everyone in the nation at the time was obsessed with. So side story. I love a story inside of a story. So there was a couple by the name of Robert and Paula Sims. And this case was not too far away from St. Louis. And it was happening around the time that Ellen was going through all of this or like being the most evil person ever. So Robert, the husband, Robert Sims, he was working the night shift and he comes home to find his wife, Paula, unconscious on the floor. They had two children. So immediately he runs to them and his son, who's two years old was fine but his six-week-old daughter infant was missing so he starts panicking paula his wife wakes up from her unconscious state and she's like oh my god a masked gunman came up to me while i was taking out the trash forced me into the house told me to lie on the floor he said he was gonna kill me and then he bonked me on the head i knocked out that's all i remember so there was this massive search in the area. And it was a really strange case because the infant daughter was missing, but nothing else was taken from the house. There was no fingerprints, no valuables that they could, you know, figure out what was going on. And the press was freaked out. I mean, the press was going wild, especially because this was the second time that this happened to the Sims family. The first time was three years ago in Illinois. In the middle of the night, Paula called the police saying, oh my God, someone took my 13 day old baby girl started freaking out. Intruder came into the house while I was watching TV, told me to lie on the floor and left the house with the baby. They were all over the news. The Sims were like, please give us back our baby. Please, we'll do anything for our baby. And the community had so much sympathy for them because a two-week-old infant, like what kind of feeling is that? And a week later, about 200 feet away from the Sims house, they found the infant's remains. But the weather was so hot in Illinois that they could not get the cause of death. So the Sims moved on with their life. They moved out of the city. And then... You know, the second kidnapping happened and they found the baby's body. She was wrapped in a black plastic, black plastic trash bag. Exactly. Dumped in the trash. Within days, Paula Sims was arrested. 
So the autopsy showed that she had been smothered. She had been um, smothered to death. And it was just like a super strange couple because the husband just kept telling the police that ever since their second kid went missing, that they were just having stellar sex, like the best sex that they've ever had. And the police is like, we asked you for your social security number, sir. But he was like, anyways, best sex of my life, just like all over the house. And then when they searched all over the house, you know, they found pictures of Randy, their son, but they found no pictures of either of their daughters. So then it came out later on that um, that Paula, Paula had been banned from sleeping in the bedroom when she gave birth to their first daughter. So she had to sleep downstairs with the baby. Now, the husband, he claims that this only happened because the work schedule, he had to go into work early. So he didn't want the baby crying, but she just thought it was weird. Then she had a son. And after he was born, I mean, he she was never kicked out of the bedroom he loved sleeping with the son and then she had another daughter and sure enough she was kicked out of the bedroom again so she felt like oh man he doesn't he doesn't like he doesn't like daughters so i gotta kill all the daughters what a bizarre bizarre relationship yeah so at this point, I mean, that case hadn't gotten to the point of trial, but she had been like arrested. She'd been all over the news the second time that this is happening to them. She just kept talking about it nonstop to everyone who would listen. I mean, just strange, just a little strange. So what is she saying? She's saying this is fascinating. OK, so this is where it gets weird. A lot of the company employees knew that she did um, things on her free time at work. You know, she would look, look at the news, read the newspapers mm-hmm. and she would make a lot of phone calls. Now, one of the phone calls that she made all the time was to different life insurance companies trying to get life insurances on her kid. Now, all the time that she was talking about Paula Sims and the whole crime, nobody was alarmed until one day she told her coworker, you know, it's so strange. I don't know how people could do that. They're like, yeah, I mean, how could you do that to your own flesh and blood, your own kid? And she said, I know Paula did it for the insurance money. I mean, later we find out in trial that she was wrong, but like, that's a weird thing to say. Meanwhile, the coworkers are looking at each other like, did we not just hear her like get insurance for her passed away son? And then now she's getting more insurance for her children and she's obsessed with this crime. I mean, it was just really unsettling for her employees, just incredibly unsettling so she took out multiple different life insurance policies for both stacy and steven each one was worth a quarter million dollars so collectively she had half a million dollars and they were all issued august and september so ellen just gets stranger to everyone just doing all this stuff at work and with deanne i mean they would go on these road trips to wrestling matches and not once did she call back home to check up on the kids deanne thought that that was so strange especially if you have a child die early on i mean usually parents become obsessive they become so worried they can't even leave the house without their kid but she's just going on on like weekend trips never calling once i mean this is so bizarre and then the bathtub incident took place with stacy in the bathtub playing with her toys dropped the hair dryer and she was electrocuted taken to the hospital and they were told that it was steven now ellen did not tell her mom ellen did not tell deanne she did not tell anybody that this took place the only people who knew that this took place was her her kids and the hospital that's it nobody else which is weird because you would think that this is something that you would share with someone and nine days nine days after the bathtub incident steven's birthday came around he just turned four years old and he had his annual checkup at the doctors so they do his routine vaccines they give him a checkup and the doctor said that he was in good health but he gave him all his vaccines and said you know he might get a mild fever just watch over him for the next couple of days that's it now the doctor did think in hindsight it was a little strange because one of the vaccines ellen was late for 
I mean, they fixed it at the appointment. They got him up on track. But like I said, usually with a parent who lose a child, especially with doctors, they become intense. They they do more checkups. They are on top of their kids' medical histories and medical everything. So the fact that, you know, Ellen just let one of his vaccines go late was just strange to him, but he didn't think anything of it. So they get home and Stephen starts feeling ill. So she puts him to bed for the rest of the night. And the next morning he wakes up and Ellen decides, you know what? Maybe I'm not going to go to work. Maybe I'm going to spend the day with him. So Stacy goes to school and Ellen calls in her coworker at 8.15 a.m. from a gas station payphone. And she just screams. The same thing that happened to David is happening to Stephen. The coworker's like, what? We're on our way to Cardinal Hospital. I'm at a payphone right now. It just happened. When I was getting dressed for work, Stephen just stopped breathing. So they're like, okay, well, Ellen, if you if you need anything, whatever, like, just call me. I'm so sorry. Please, please just call us. Let us know if you need anything. And she hangs up. Meanwhile, Stephen is just patiently waiting, feeling much better, ready for the day in the backseat of her car. Wait, what? Yeah, he's just chilling. It's bizarre. Bizarre set of events. It's going to get even more bizarre. So she gets back into the car and the coworker tells her boss like, oh my God, it's happening again. And everyone was just so shocked because what happened to David happened 10 months ago. So meanwhile, Ellen calmly gets back into the car and Stephen's like, let's go to, let's go to Taco Bell. So they start running some errands. They go to a pharmacy, pick up some Tylenol. They go to Taco Bell. And then that's when he was like, please, can we go to David's grave? Please, please. And they both just go there and sob. They just sit at the grave and sob, and Stephen just kept saying, Mommy, I wish I was with David. So three hours later, Ellen calls the office again, 11.30 in the morning, and she says, We're headed back to the hospital. They couldn't find anything wrong with Stephen, so they let him go. But then when I was driving home, he stopped breathing again. He's starting to turn blue at a payphone. What is going on? Why is he reporting it to the coworkers? I don't know. And so she drives home, turns on Sesame Street for him, and she starts doing some housework. When he falls asleep, she reaches for a sofa cushion and pushes it over his face and held it down firmly while Sesame Street is playing in the background. Like, who does stuff like this? And she watched him for a few minutes to see if he started breathing again. And when he didn't, she rushed to her neighbor's houses. Now, she lives on the fifth floor right next to a medical student. But does she go right next door to her medical student? No, she takes the elevator to the eighth floor and starts just bonking around on the doors like, help, I need help. And then eventually she goes back to the fifth floor and a lot of time has passed and she starts banging on the medical student's door and he's like, what happened? And she's like, well, I put him on the couch. He was watching TV and now I just checked up on him and I found him like this. So they call 911. The med student's doing like crazy CPR. The paramedics come and they take him straight to the hospital and they're like, do you hurry, get in the ambulance. And she's like, no, like I need to go pick up my mom. They're like, that's strange. Now, at this point, I mean, all of the neighbors were like in the lobby because when you see ambulances, you're like, what, what? Right. Mm -hmm. And one of the neighbors was really close to her mom and was like, I'll go pick up Catherine, which is Ellen's mom. Like, I'll go pick Mm -hmm. her up and take her to the hospital. And she's like, no, I can do it. And the paramedics are like, "Okay, forget this. Like, we got to go. This is a baby. Like, we got to we got to make sure. Why doesn't she want to get into? I don't know. I mean, she just doesn't care, it seems. Now, before she goes to pick up her mom, she goes back into her apartment and makes a couple more strange phone calls. And she calls work and says, oh, my God, they're taking him off of life support. It's like, what? She's not even at the hospital yet. This is so bizarre. And then she calls two other friends and she tells them the version of events that the paramedics know. He was feeling sick. I called off of work. I took him to Taco Bell. We came home watching Sesame Street. And now he's he's like dying on the couch. 
So now we've got two versions of events that she's telling people. And then she calls Deanne at work. Now, Deanne was homesick. She didn't know this, but her receptionist was like, yeah, I can take a message. Like, I can tell Deanne. And she said, oh, my God. So last night, as I was sleeping, in the middle of the night, Stephen stopped breathing. And now he's at the hospital. So now she has a third version of events, which is so bizarre. So we've got four total versions of what happened at work. She tells them that she was getting ready for work and then he stopped breathing. She took him straight to the hospital. Then she left. Then she went straight back. And now he's going off life support to her other friends in the hospital staff. She told them that she was spending the day with him because he was sick of vaccines. Then he was watching TV and now he wasn't breathing. Oh, my God. To Deanne's receptionist, she said he was found unconscious in the middle of the night. Just stopped breathing in the middle of the night. And then the truth is that she's a murderer. So there's like four different versions going on. Why? I can't even tell you. So the medical student gets to the hospital before her and tells the doctor what happened. You know, this is the state that I found him in. And Ellen just like casually walks in, not very panicked. He he drove by himself. So he made it faster than Ellen, which is insane so her co-workers also rushed there because they're like he's taking off life support like this is crazy so they rushed to the scene and they are retold the same story so she sticks with her story with this one they're like yeah i was getting ready for work blah 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 and the one thing that they noticed is she was dressed so casually like no part of her body looked like she was getting ready for work like she didn't have trousers on maybe she had pajama bottoms and like a blouse on but like everything was very casual Mm. so in a life-threatening situation you're not like oh let me put on something comfy you know So they just thought that was strange, but they didn't question it. So Ellen leaves to go be with Stephen and everyone else is waiting in the waiting room, including Ellen's mom. And she starts talking to the coworkers. And so Ellen's mom is like, oh, my God, can you believe it? And she starts telling them, I mean, today was so normal. They went to Taco Bell. They went to the cemetery. And the coworkers are like, what? That is what? So Stephen was declared dead at 3.45 p.m. While Ellen was in the waiting room, he was declared dead. And she just like told everyone, oh, well. Now, as she's leaving, she bumps into Paul's first wife, Susan. You remember after the funeral, she's like trying to like pull some distance between them. Mm -hmm. And Susan was confused. She's like, oh, what are you doing here? Like, did one of the kids break their arms? Like a bad cut, you know, very casual stuff. Why else do you bring toddlers to the hospital? Why are you at the hospital? And she just said, Yeah, the same thing that happened to David happened to Stephen. Yeah, I donated his eyes to science. Do you want to see him? He's right in there. She was not crying. She was not freaking out. Just super blunt. So she's Mm. like, huh? And Deanne calls back. I mean, she's hysterical. And she's like, what? What are you talking about? And she just gets confused because Ellen starts telling her a new story. The same story about what she told the hospital staff, you know, watching Sesame Street. And she's like, but but I thought it was in the middle of the night. And Ellen's like, nope. Nope, but... And she just thought that was so strange. Now, Deanne, of course, did not want to accuse her friend of having any part in her child's death because that's a really big accusation to make. But it was just so strange that she decided to call up her friend in the law enforcement industry and was like, hey, do you know anyone that could just casually look into it? Like if if it's not, then that's amazing. Right. But if it is, then something needs to be done. So they're like, all right, we'll look into it. Now, meanwhile, the medical examiner, I mean, he is boggling his mind over this. You are talking about there's no cause of death. He can't find anything. There's nothing wrong with him. There's no illness. There's no disease. I mean, they ran a ton of tests. They ran a ton of like blood work. Nothing. And the fact that this is the second nearly identical death of a young child in the same house within a year. I mean, that's really suspicious. So high on his list, his suspicion was death by asphyxia 
which it's difficult to strangle a child without leaving a mark on their neck. But there's something called, you know, like smothering, like especially for a young kid, it's easy to smother someone with small lungs. So you either lay on top of them, you just smother them with like a pillow, a blanket on their face. And it doesn't necessarily leave any markings. So he's working with this and he just thinks that this is so suspicious. And he's telling the police like, hey, I have not ruled it like an accidental death or like natural causes yet. So just hold off. And a week later, an anonymous tipster calls the social worker line and they say, hey, something happened with that family. I don't know who this person is, but they just said that I know about the bathtub incident and they give them the whole ordeal. This took place nine days before Stephen's murder. You know, Stacy was electrocuted in the bathtub. I mean, you don't think that's strange? That's super strange. There's someone who knew about the bathtub. Yeah, I think it probably had to do with maybe someone in the building is my suspicion or someone from the hospital, maybe like a nurse was like, hey. Yeah, because those are the only people who knows about yeah. it. Yeah, so they called and was like, that's weird. No. Right? Like, that's yeah. weird, guys. So the child services worker gets put on the case, goes to Stacy's school to interview her. She's eight years old, and she remembered that night. She was like, yeah, Stephen threw the hair dryer in. Now, when they brought up Stephen, she was just like, well, he got his shots, and then he was sick. So the social worker's like, okay, well, none of that's illegal. She interviews Ellen the next day, and she was just really odd. Her retelling of events was strange, and the fact that in some parts she would just be like, no, it was so vague. Like, I, he was watching TV. I came. Oh, my God. Blew in the face. He was dying. And then certain parts of the story, she was like, oh, and then I drove to Walgreens and then I picked up this brand of Tylenol because this is the one that's better. Like, certain parts were so detail-oriented. And then the actual parts that mattered, she was like, yeah, he was watching TV. I came into the room about 15 minutes later. Like, it's just weird. But again, I mean, it's the same story. It matches up with everybody else. So they wrote up a report and they filed it away. And then the tenants inside of Ellen's building started like a manual GoFundMe for Stephen's death. So they started collecting money. And while they're thinking about, okay, like what, what's our goal? How much should we try to raise? One day, Ellen comes into the lobby skipping. She's happy. She's laughing. And she says, guess what? What, Ellen? I found this other funeral home that is so much cheaper. So the one with David was like $5,000, but this one's only $3,000. Isn't that crazy? What? So she gets her State Farm payout. So State Farm was the only insurance that would pay her out about $100,000. Every other insurance said without that cause of death, without, you know, making sure nothing suspicious happened, you didn't like kill them for life insurance, we will not pay you out. So she only gets 100 out of the quarter million and she struts into a car dealership and she sees a blue car and says, I'll take it without even test driving it. <laughs> He's dying right now without even test driving it. And the sales guy, I mean, I, I used to be a sales girl. I used to work in like a jewelry department. OK, this is like an amazing sale. You don't even want to try on the necklace. Are you kidding me? This is either a credit card fraud or like the best day ever. And so I'm like, oh, yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah, like really without even test driving it. And she was like, yeah, how much is it? Thirty four thousand dollars. Yeah, I'll take it. Love it. He's like, amazing. So as he's like doing his little paperwork, she says, yeah, I'm getting the money from um, insurance. My son just died just so casually. So he's like, whoa, but he still fills out that form. OK, because he's got to get that commission, I guess. So he just like keeps going. And she's like, all right, well, pick it up tomorrow. And Deanne and all these people are like, what is happening? So Deanne starts ignoring Ellen because she just can't take it anymore. She's like, I am about to die. Like, you are so suspicious. You're so weird. And if you're not suspicious, you're just incredibly heartless to your own children. And so Ellen calls Deanne one day and just tells her, listen, 
I thought you would want to know that I just learned the boys died from electrical rhythms of the heart. I don't know what that means, but there was no cause of death determined, so... She made that up? Yeah. I think maybe she thought that Deanne was getting suspicious of her. So she just started like making up stuff. And Deanne was like, okay, weird. And the police and the doctors at this point, I mean, they're ramping their things up. There was no genetic issues that they could find. There was no poison in the system. I mean, the one thing that they kept going towards was the fact that this was, you know, smothering him. And they find out about the hairdryer incident. They find out about her not paying the funeral bill. But they also find out about all the insurance that she had. Again, this is not murder evidence, but it definitely is a motive. And it definitely is circumstantial. So they confront Ellen and they said, hey, why did you take out life insurance for your two very young children that have no health problems? What's going on? And she said, oh, yeah. So I wanted to like get a little bit of life insurance. You know, because David died and I don't know if there was something genetically wrong with us. Just like a little bit. But they kept selling me. And somehow I got a quarter million dollars on each kid. Okay. I mean, that's... So they're like, hmm. So as they're questioning her, she was with Stacy. So they had to take Stacy in. And one of the officers was watching the young kid. And she said, I love mommy. Like, she didn't do it. She didn't do it. She just kept saying that, which is so sad, right? She didn't do anything. And they're like, well, what about the hairdryer incident? They're trying to get information out of her. And she said, well, it wasn't Steven. It wasn't anybody. Nobody was in the room. That's what she kept saying. So that's when the police are like, that's weird. So they start digging deep into Ellen's life. And, you know, that's when all the strange stuff comes out about her being kind of in this weird fantasy land with relationships with men. And she genuinely believes that they really like her. Just really intense. She did some weird things when she was still with Paul. She sent a letter to another bus driver and said, meet me at this place. Like, I'm a hot anonymous girl that wants to date you. And out of pure curiosity, he showed up at the place. And he sees not a hot anonymous girl, but Ellen with Paul. And Paul just starts trying to throw punches at him. And he's like, stop hitting on my wife. And he's like, bro, I don't even know your wife. I don't even like your wife. Like, what's the deal? So she told Paul, her husband, that this guy was just like fiending over her, just like hitting on her nonstop. Got them in the same place and like Paul tried to beat him <laughs> oh up. My God, Just really weird. Crazy. She would call up her wrestler crushes and all of her like work crushes under a fake number. And she called herself the Fuzzy Bunny. And she would start aggressively talking dirty to them under the disguise of Fuzzy Bunny. And nobody thought it was her until the police asked them all about it. And all of them ended up having a Fuzzy Bunny connection, which they just thought, OK, well, now it's got to be Ellen because there's no way people from her ex workplace, her new workplace, her pizza delivery place and the wrestler like circuit uh-huh. like. They all had calls from a fuzzy bunny. Oh, my God. They, you know, another car dealer person was like, oh, yeah, one time I took in her car. And I don't know why this part is notable, but like this was one of the witness statements. He said, yeah, I don't get good vibes from her because when I got her car in the backseat of her car, she left out a can of butt lube and it was titled butt grease. And I was like, wow, this really was the 90s, because if I saw that in 2021, I'd be like, ooh. Where'd you get it? I'm kidding. Hey. <laughs> I'm kidding. But like no one would care in 2021. But he was just like, I knew something was wrong with her. Who who has a can of butt grease? Criminals. That's who. Like he was just really offended by the butt grease. So offended. And so, you know, they start going around to all these people and it just it kind of clicked. I mean, they once they started talking to the coworkers and they said that she gave a very different version of events. That's yeah. where it's weird. If she called at eight in the morning to say that he's dying before he was even dying, technically, that's premeditation, isn't it? 
Yes, ma'am. <laughs> so Ellen tells Deanne that she hired an attorney. She's like, well, that kind of seems smart. I mean, it seems like you are going to get arrested soon, but she didn't say that. So she's like, oh, why? And Ellen says, well, I need to collect the rest of the insurance. And they're just like not giving it to me. And Deanne's <laughs> thinking to herself like, what? Like, do you not realize what's going on right now? And so she asks the very big question of, I just don't understand why you have four policies on him. Why, why do you have a quarter million dollars of insurance policies on Steven? And no offense, Ellen, you can't even afford groceries. Like, where did you get the money to pay for these premiums? It was a free trial. It was a free trial, a free 30 day trial. And if I didn't like it, I could return it. Seriously? No, she's and Deanne tells her, do you know how crazy that sounds? So if he doesn't die within 30 days, you would return it and say that it's not a good life insurance. But if he dies, it's a great policy like there's that doesn't make sense. And so she's like, well, yeah, it does. And she just hung up the phone. So, I mean, the police speculation is that she felt like she was being held back by her kids. Maybe there is postpartum depression going on. Um, well, in the 90s, that no one really recognized postpartum depression that intensely. So they were like, well, she was feeling bad about having her kids holding her back. She didn't like them. And she was a cruel mom. She wanted to be attractive to men. And maybe it wasn't working. Maybe she felt like, well, I'm overweight. And that's why men don't like me. But you know what everyone loves? Money. So this was yeah. kind of like a three-in-one deal, right? And finally, a board of seven doctors from all over the country. They had to do this because, you know, that one doctor couldn't come up with it. And the only way for it to actually pass in court is to get a bunch of doctors that are specialized on it. And they went over the reports and all unanimously deemed it a homicide. And they sent it to the judge to get a warrant. Now, the police, they get real cute with it. They decide, yeah, well, we still need like a massive confession because this is I mean, when you're talking about a mom, a single mom with trauma, I mean, the jury, unless we have a crazy confession, they're just they're going to side with the mom. Right. Mm -hmm. So we need to get her. So after they get this warrant, they decide to do a little movie set. They change one of their regular rooms and they tape up this um, very official sign that they had made for them called Bohm's Task Force. So her last name's Task Force. So imagine like Sue's Task Force. So it kind of indicates that there is an entire task force against Ellen like there would be a serial killer mm. and they put in extra file cabinets stuffed them so that they wouldn't even um close properly with just files of folders and it all they try to make it all look like it was on Ellen nothing mm. else but Ellen they put in extra desks they dug out cigarette butts from the trash can and put them in ashtrays to make it look like people had just been in here smoking all day all night just trying to figure out who killed her kids the, yeah. the tactic, man. The tactics. The, the psychological tactics yeah. that these cops they, are coming up yeah. with. They brought in trash cans filled with like old crumbled coffee cups. They put out cold <laughs> oh coffee, hot coffee. They had random police officers who weren't even working on our case just come sit in there going over paperwork and they were told, don't even look at her. Don't even acknowledge her. Just look like you're intensely working. Oh, my God. So, I mean, because it had been over a year and a half since Stephen's death. So they really needed her to feel scared because she must have a lot of confidence. I mean, she's getting away with it. She got $100,000 in insurance money, right? So they have this whole setup. And on Friday the 13th, they arrest her. 
And immediately, I mean, she looks around the room and she just cracks. She just like crumbles. They just straight up tell her, you wanted insurance money. And she says, yes. Just so, like that. Yeah. They sit her in front of a video camera. She waived her rights. She waived her rights to an attorney and she confessed to everything. So when it comes to David, she said that it just happened. He wouldn't sleep and I was just so stressed and he wasn't sleeping. I even tried to donate his organs and his eyes to science, but they said that his fever was so high that his organs were cooked. She refused to take responsibility for what happened to Stacy in the bathtub. But when asked about Steven, she said, well, I mean, we went to the grave and he kept saying that he wanted to be with David. And I think him saying that with the stress of life, like she's straight up blaming her child. Uh, you know, him constantly saying that with the stress of life. I just I just felt like it was the only way. It just happened so fast. And when they asked about, you know, did any of the kids struggle? She said with David, he he struggled a little bit. He was a little fighter. He tried to push the pillow away, but um, that stopped. He stopped fighting and I was tired. And they're like, what? Like, she's just saying it like this, like just so nonchalant. And the one thing that I had so many questions about, which I'm sure you do too, is why did you lie to your workplace? Mm -hmm. She said, I just wanted to spend the time with Steven. Well, then why didn't you, why did you call them back at 1130 and lie again? And then once more and then lie again. I just don't understand that. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to go to work that day. Well, yeah, but work was already assuming that you weren't coming to work. Yeah. I know. That's it. That's all she said. So 40 minutes, she confessed to the murders of David and Stephen, refused the attempted murder of Stacy. She did not cry once. She kept smudging her makeup with a Kleenex, but never one tear. She's just fully dry eyes. So now she's facing the death penalty and they offered her a deal. They said plead guilty to two counts of first degree murder and first degree assault against Stacy and there will be no trial. You will get life in prison without parole if you plead guilty. And so she did. So now she is um, she was appealing her sentence. She said that the video confession was coerced. She wasn't offered a lawyer. Her lawyers were incompetent when she got one. And I don't I don't know if it'll work. I think my thing is. Does she have postpartum depression? Because I think that my opinions would change a tiny bit if she did. Because right now I'm like complete psychopath. I want to punch her in the face. But if she had postpartum depression, I would um maybe not punch her I mean, as I, hard. I feel like she has some mental illness, illness, but it doesn't excuse any yeah. of these at all. But I think not an excuse, but like maybe I could sleep better thinking, okay, well, not everyone's this evil. Like if there was something that could give me like a, yeah. oh, okay. Like, I mean, I think so. I, f- I feel like how, how, is that she lies so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you're saying that she just bluntly tells people, hey, that guy's hitting on me. Yeah. This guy's hitting. Like, can you imagine any normal person just lies so bluntly? I feel like the fact that she's calling the workplace is herself just constantly lying without even thinking about the consequences. Like can't even control it. Yeah. She's not thinking about how she fix a lie, but she's just have to keep on lying. Because it doesn't seem like this really cold, calculated, premeditated, like perfectly crafted, diabolical plan. It's just like, what? Like there are so many times while I'm researching that I'm just like kind of like laughing and like disbelief. Just yeah. How do you think you can get away after buying quarter million in insurance and kills two of your kids within six months and then get away with that. What? There's a lot of evil there. And Stacy, the only survivor, 
Um, mm-hmm. she, she grew up and in her teenage years, she was hospitalized for depression. And I think, th- um, yeah, well, she's got like a new identity and she's just trying to live life. So that's why we changed her name to Stacy. How old is she now? Still pretty young, no? She was eight in 90. So like close to 40. Wow. Yeah. So wow. what are your thoughts on this mini-sode? The not so mini-sode. That's never a mini-sode. And then what's everybody's reaction afterwards? All the friend, the best friend, the co-workers. Just confused and disgusted. Like confused, like they did not suspect her of being able to do that. I mean, I think it's like you would never think that they would do that. And then suddenly it happened and then they were getting suspicious. But every single one of them, they constantly kept saying, but there's no way. They always kept saying, you know, there's no way. People react to different things differently. People react to grief differently. I think they just kept putting it off as Ellen has always been a little bit weird. She hasn't always been like the most normal person. You know, she lies about certain things. So maybe this is her way of dealing with trauma. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of what everyone kept saying. Like she, she was, it was a little weird. So that is the story of Ellen Bohm. Bohm? Bohm. Let me know. What are your thoughts on this one? And, and I hope you guys enjoyed and I'll see you guys on Wednesday. Bye.